Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Today's topic is uncertainty in investing. You can't predict the future, so we're going to discuss investing in the face of uncertainty. Today's podcast will focus on a single precept. You can't predict the future. So we're going to spend the whole show focusing on this idea of you can't predict the future. What does it mean? What are the first and second order effects? How can this make your investing better? I think this is an area that obviously everyone knows, but people don't take to its logical conclusion. And I think there's some key examples that you will be able to see where that is true, that people aren't fully taking into account what it means that they can't predict the future. Now, if you can predict the future, if that's you, if you're one of the, the the rare people that knows how to predict the future, feel free to end the show now. The show's not for you. You can welcome to listen in and, and laugh at all of those of us who don't have the ability to see the future perfectly. But if you're one of the normal people, if you're one of the everyday um, people on this earth that can't predict the future, then stay tuned because I think there's some important information that you should consider in your investing strategy, in your investing process that will help you to be a better investor. Now, today's podcast, we're going to begin with first and second order effects, and then we're going to go to conclusions. We're going to address what are the conclusions of investing in the facing of uncertainty. We're going to address Um, the only thing that you know can know to be true when you're investing. And we're going to end with a key point that I sum up how it impacts my investing philosophy. There's going to be many mental models discussed in this show, whether it be margin of safety, zero-based thinking, um, uncertainty, rebalancing, all sorts of things like that. I think you'll really enjoy this show. So welcome. If you are listening, don't forget that you can listen on YouTube. This is our second podcast episode that is being a video recorded podcast. So if you want to see me recorded on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to that YouTube channel. Now, margin of safety is where we're going to begin because the first thing we need to address is first order effects. If you can't predict the future and you're going to invest in the face of uncertainty, you're going to need a margin of safety. Margin of safety is the key concept that has been established in the value investing community to address this fact of being unable to predict the future. Since you don't know what's going to happen, since you don't know whether a company is going to grow, since you don't know if a product is going to fail, since you don't know what the future competition is going to look like, you don't know any of those things. You need to invest with the margin of safety. So what is a margin of safety? Margin of safety is the protection that you have in an investment to prevent you from losing money. Now, there's many different ways to think about margin of safety. I've done a whole episode on margin of safety talking about those different ways. That can include stuff like paying a cheaper price. If you think a company's worth $100 a share, you know, only buy it for two-thirds of that price, so pay something like $66 or less. Um, You could have a margin of safety from quality. So invest in higher quality of companies, the higher quality it is, the less volatility in its earnings, that lower volatility in earnings means it makes it more predictable. So you have a margin of safety due to the predictability of the business model. Um, there's many ways you can build margin of safety. It could be multiple product lines. It could be a conglomerate that has multiple companies in it. It can be simply diversifying your portfolio. So margin of safety encompasses a lot of things, but What it clearly says is that a margin of safety is necessary. Because you can't predict the future, you need some sort of margin of safety. So you should be doing stuff like paying a cheaper price. You should be doing stuff like buying higher quality companies because you can't predict the future. 
A lot of strategies implicitly imply the ability to predict the future. They're implicitly doing that. And I think the examples today will show why that's true. If you're buying companies in a certain way, you won't have a margin of safety. And that means that in some cases, you're going to get punished for that. And so that's something you want to make sure you have in your portfolio. That's a first order effect of not being able to predict the future. So what's another first order effect? Well, it means that there's a preference for cash now versus cash later. Now, this is a common precept in discounted cash flow analysis. Obviously, money that you have today is more important than money you have in the future. So this is, of course, your time value of money. So time value of money is just a simple idea. You want more money now versus money later. But it's not the same thing simply to talk about it in valuation terms. You want to look at it holistically when you're assessing a company. Companies that have cash on their balance sheet are going to be safer than companies that don't because you don't know what the future is going to hold. Tomorrow, the government could shut down that business, could say, sorry, you can't operate because, you know, COVID 2.0 has been released. There's another virus. There's something that in 2019, people just didn't predict. Real estate investors didn't predict that, you know, tenants would be allowed to not pay their rent and would be protected from the government um, from doing so. And landlords were put into a big problem with that. Um, This was true for a lot of retail companies that just were not allowed to be open or were forced to operate at lower capacity, uh, basically eliminating their ability to make a profit. So, Having cash on your balance sheet is a first order effect of something that you would preference if you know you can't predict the future. That's going to be better than having cash in the future, either from growth or thinking about, well, I could always raise debt. Um, It's why thinking about an emergency fund in terms of cash in your bank account is better than an emergency fund that is simply um, an uncalled home equity line of credit or extra balance protection on your credit cards. So you might have you know, which, which is, would you prefer $25,000 in cash in your bank account or a $25,000 home equity line of credit that you haven't pulled yet, or $25,000 of credit cards, um, capacity that you haven't used yet. Either way, you have the same amount of potential spending power, but one is safer than the others. The cash in your bank can't be prevented from getting to you versus something like the home equity line of credit could go away because their home values went down and could go away because the bank thinks you're too big of a risk now. The credit card balances could be reduced at any time to what they offer you. And so one of those is safer than the other. This is also why when you bring it back to investing that you want profitable companies. A profitable company is going to be preferable if you think that you can't predict the future. One of the things that happens when you buy an unprofitable company today is you are assuming you can predict the future and that in the future it will become a profitable company. That may work out sometimes, but other times it's not going to work out. And so you need to think about the total sum of possible outcomes and that one of the possible outcomes is they never become profitable. Another possible outcome is it takes them longer to become profitable than you expect. Another possible outcome is they do become profitable, but it's less profitable than you expect. Or many, many things along those lines. All of those things can destroy the potential return of your investment. Which leads me into another first order effect of not being able to predict the future, growth. You see, growth is important. You want to buy growing companies. Growth does all sorts of things that help you become a better investor. It can help you correct for mistakes. Um, It can do many different things along those lines. 
So it can help you fix mistakes. It can do many things that help you become a better investor. But what it really helps you do is it's necessary for the company to correct their own mistakes and to help prevent them from making mistakes. A company that isn't growing is likely to make more mistakes because now the management has a harder situation. If a company is growing at 6% every year, they know that they're always going to have a little bit more money coming in. It's easier to raise, um, give their employees raises. They don't have to worry about fighting with suppliers for margins. They can simply raise their prices or they can raise the number of customers they have. They can boost production. They don't have to worry about all sorts of complicated problems that come into play for companies that aren't growing. So that's something you need to be aware of, that you want to buy growing companies. That's a way that you build into this idea that you can't predict the future. But even though you're going to try and buy companies that are growing, you don't know for certain that that growth will come. You can't predict it. So your strategy has to be built on the fact that you want growing companies, but you don't actually know it will happen. How do you do that? Again, it brings into all these margin of safety concerns. Those are all first order effects, though, of what you're trying to do. The second order effects, though, get more complicated. And before we get into second order effects, here is a note from our sponsor. Do you have an idea for a great new podcast? You can bring your idea to life and start your podcast today with Libsyn. Our podcast has been hosted on Libsyn for five years, and we love it. Libsyn has everything you need to plan, launch, and grow your own podcast. Libsyn provides some of the best resources created by expert podcasters who will show you everything you need to know, like what equipment you should use, how to record great audio, and how to get your show onto Apple Podcasts and other popular platforms. Plus, as a friend of the DIY Investing Podcast, when you sign up with Libsyn, you get your first month of podcast hosting for free. There has never been a better time than right now for you to start podcasting. Visit Libsyn.com and use code FRIEND, F-R-I-E-N-D. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com and use code FRIEND, F-R-I-E-N-D, to get started and create your podcast today. So, when we think second-order effects... It's important to remember that some of what you know about investing simply may not be true. There's many sayings, there's many pithy phrases that people like to use when they think about investing and they make recommendations to other people. And you might use these yourself. You might say stuff that is just pithy because it's pithy and it's easy to remember, it's easy to share, um, and it usually communicates a kernel of truth. But obviously life is more complicated than that. And this is where the importance of zero-based thinking comes into play. Zero-based thinking is a key second-order effect of not being able to predict the future. And that is the idea that what is the best decision today is the one you should make based upon what you know today. It's not based upon what you knew in the past. It's not based upon what you think the future is going to be. It's based upon what you know today. And that goes against a lot of the common sense. It's where you hear people say, okay, well, I want to buy companies. You know, I want to think about what the company is going to be worth in five years. And that's true. You do. But you also don't know what the company is going to be worth in five years. You have an idea. You have assumptions. Every time you make an assumption, though, it weakens the possible case for that outcome. So you need to assess what that possible outcome is likely to be. Where is it going to go? That sort of thing. So what is the best decision that you know today? So that means you need to be valuing a company by what it's worth today. 
You can also assess what you think the company's going to be worth tomorrow or in five years. You can also assess the company was worth five years ago and understand how that plays into it. But you have to always understand that you know nothing better than what you know about the company today. And the more you embed the future into your assessments, the weaker your analysis will become. So let's think about some of the ways that um, this plays into things. And both of these are going to come into the idea of something, you know, momentum. Momentum is one of the factors that people like to talk about investing. And it's very, very popular. It's one of the most popular factors out there. Um, A lot of times, and certainly recently, it seems like momentum is a more popular factor than value. Um, And so this is one of the common things you'll hear. Don't catch a falling knife. Another one you'll hear, hold on to winners and trim your losers. Both of these things are wrong and both of these things are true, but they are wrong in the sense that you can't predict the future. There are times where they're going to prove to be the right decision, but because it's not the right decision all the time, it means it's wrong. It means that Although there's that kernel of truth and there's times you don't want to catch the falling knife, there are going to be times that you do want to catch the falling knife. And for those that don't know what it means, falling knife basically means if the stock price is crashing, don't buy it until it stops crashing. But obviously, if the stock price is crashing, it's a lower price than it was before, you could have a good deal. So there are going to be occasions where buying the stock when it's down offers you the opportunity to make excess returns. The way you address this with zero-based thinking is you don't care about where the price was yesterday, a week ago, a month ago, or a year ago. All you care about is where's the price today and how does that relate to current value and my estimate of future value. Because you don't know the future, you also don't know if the past is likely to tell the future. And that's the problem with momentum. Momentum is this idea that the recent past tells you about the recent future or the short-term future, depending upon how you want to define it. So what Don't Catch a Falling Knife is trying to prevent you from doing is buying a stock that's about to continue dropping. But if you're using zero-based thinking, then that doesn't matter. What you're trying to do is improve the overall risk return of your portfolio with every decision you make. And sometimes buying a stock that's caught falling is going to do that simply based upon the current status of it and the possible future. The short-term price movements aren't what matters, even though that's what it's advising you about. And the short-term recent past performance doesn't actually predict the future. There are times stocks will continue to fall when they've been falling. And there are times when they will turn around and go up. And that's when you hit a bottom or even a short-term bottom. So you don't actually know the future. So when you say something like this, it implies you do know the future. You need to be very careful of anything you say that implies you know the future. So next one, hold on to your winners and trim your losers. Well, this is the idea that your winners are the stocks that are going up, the ones that have made a gain, and your losers are the ones that have been that have not been performing. Well, it again assumes that the past performance is going to tell future performance. You don't know that. It may be true. There are going to be times where it is true. That's why people say it. But there's also going to be times where it's not true. So it's wrong because it assumes that winners will keep on winning and losers will keep on losing. Again, this happens all the time. But the opposite also happens. So 
you need to assess not which time is this. You need to make your decisions based upon a zero-based thinking, one that doesn't require knowing the future. If you're making a decision that requires knowing the future in order to be right, it's probably a decision that's either wrong or one you shouldn't be making. You need to be making it in a way where regardless of the future outcome, you believe you're improving the likely performance of your portfolio. This brings me to the central problem with rebalancing. When you think of this as a second order effect, rebalancing generally assumes the future. It assumes the past is going to be like the, the future is going to be like the past, and sometimes um, it's trying to take an advantage. And the rebalancing is often very different from even the last one I said. So rebalancing might be the idea that you take some of your winners and you buy some of your losers. So we're the exact opposite of the other one. But it's also wrong because there are going to be times you do want to hold on to your winners and trim your losers. You need to be structuring your portfolio in a way that understands that you don't know which time is which. You don't know when you make a decision to rebalance whether it's going to improve your portfolio or not. All you know is probabilities. So what you're trying to assess is, is the probable outcomes better than they were before? Is the weighted average of those probable outcomes better than they were before? That's what you're assessing. That's what you're trying to understand. And so you need to look at that in that way and try and make sense of that. So one of the other pieces here is that it's definitely true that rebalancing can add value, but it's impossible to know if you're rebalancing both will be successful and whether it has been successful. Unless you're going to double check each and every decision, you know, one year in the future, five years in the future, 10 years in the future, you're never going to know. You don't need to know if it's been making sense. You just need to know whether knowing what you knew at the time, if you think it was going to add value to your portfolio. And if you do that successfully on a repetitive basis, overall, that should be a source of potential alpha. So how then do you behave? How do you invest in the face of uncertainty? This brings me to the second portion of this show. And in terms of investing in the face of uncertainty, you need to be thinking about this maximum, of course, that you can't predict the future. What are some ideas of what this means? You cannot assume business momentum. You plan for it, and you might buy stocks you think have it, but your strategy cannot assume it will continue. What do I mean? It means if a company is improving and has a recent past of making good decisions, getting better over time, that's something you want to be able to buy. Those are likely to work out well, but you can't build into your valuation. You can't build into your overall assessment of the business that that business momentum continues. You might want it, But you really need to understand what is it you own today without the business momentum and have the business momentum be a bonus. And I think this is where a lot of investors fail. They'll say, oh, this company has a strong history of recent growth, 10%, 20%, 30% growth per year. And they're looking at that business momentum and say, hey, I want to hop on for the ride. But you never know if the day you buy is also the day the ride ends. So you need that margin of safety. You need to build in the uncertainty that that business momentum might not continue. You also cannot assume reversion to the mean. Now, this is kind of the opposite. So if you're buying a stock that has terrible recent business momentum, you might plan for it and buy cheap stocks because they offer the opportunity to revert to the mean, whether in price or the business. So they've had some bad recent results. But you can't assume that just because they've had bad recent results that they won't end up bankrupt. They might. You have to be very careful. Your strategy has to take that into account. 
So you cannot assume um, that this will continue and will be fixed over that long period of time. So when we think about this, we really need to understand these things go both ways. And you might be thinking, man, this is, this is a confusing podcast. But it's an important idea. It's a complex idea. Your strategy has to have stuff like that margin of safety. You have to have um, that value preference. You have to be thinking about what exists today. Not because it will always exist. Not because you don't think it, you'll have growth. You don't think you'll have these things. But you need to plan for the worst. You need to build that into your underlying strategy. Likewise, if a company's growing, you can't assume that growth will continue. You can't assume a specific growth target will be hit. Maybe it's been growing at 10% a year. You can't assume 10% for the next five years. You need to assume maybe less. And you need to have a built-in strategy for what if it's not 10%, what if it's 8%, what if it's 6%, what if it's 4%, what if it declines? And you need to know and understand what you're going to do in advance. Because the hardest thing to do is if you haven't prepared for a decline in revenue, you haven't prepared for changing business growth or business conditions, and you get surprised, you're likely to react badly. If you thought you could predict the future and you couldn't, you're likely to react badly and make a wrong decision. Look at Facebook. Look at Meta. The company's stock price has collapsed. Look at Netflix. The company's stock price has collapsed. Why? Because now they're predicting some short-term revenue growth, or short-term revenue declines, short-term subscriber declines. And people were forecasting growth to continue for three, four, five, ten years in the future, in addition to pricing increases. And now there's declines? They didn't have it anywhere in their model. So you turn what should be relatively simple, you know, a short-term decline, 5%, 10% declines, into an 80% reduction in your stock price, into a 60% reduction in your stock price. Because the model just assumed continuing compounded growth. Your valuations, your assessments need to be built on that that doesn't always continue. You might want it to. You might hope it does. You might do all sorts of things alongside of it. But if you don't make the decision that the business may not get better than it is today, you could be in trouble with your portfolio assessment. Likewise, this isn't just about valuation. It also goes into business quality. You can't assume that your predictions about business quality are both accurate today and will be accurate in the future. You have to have the uncertainty that you might think company A is the highest quality company in your portfolio, but it might be company B. Company B might be better than company A, and company A might actually be poor quality. You might be wrong. So how do you build your strategy around the fact that you could be wrong? Ideas about, you know, limits on how much stock you own in a single company. Ideas about diversification. Ideas about um, your buying strategy. Ideas about your selling strategy. All of you take this into account. You might want to trim between one company and the other because that's the sort of thing that allows you to take these uncertainties into account. Plan for uncertainty. You can't predict the future. So stop acting like it. This is a big problem in our investing community. People believe they can predict the future based upon their level of certainty on these things. The only thing you can know to be true is that the future is uncertain. Some of your decisions will be a mistake. That doesn't mean you don't make a decision. Indecision is a decision. 
Simply holding a stock is a decision. It's not like your initial buy is one decision and your final sell is a second decision. Every day you continue to own a company is a decision to buy that company. Every day you you don't sell a company is a decision to buy that company. Holding is a decision. So you need to be aware of that. This plays in a margin of safety. The closer you get to the intrinsic value of a company in the stock price, the less comfortable you should be holding it. That's okay. That is a rational assessment of the unpredictability of the future. That doesn't mean you have to sell. You still have to have other opportunities. This is partly why you need to continue working. You need to continue finding new ideas because if you don't have good enough new ideas, you're going to be stuck with suboptimal outcomes because eventually the stock price, stocks that you own will trend towards intrinsic value which means you're going to be forced to make decisions. You're going to be forced to either hold stocks that are too high in price. You're going to be forced to buy stocks that are too high in price. You're going to be forced to make bad selling decisions because you don't have enough good opportunities. The only way to get new good opportunities is to keep turning over rocks, keep doing more research, find new ideas. So this also brings you to the idea that selling some winners can be correct and selling others may be a mistake. Your strategy needs to incorporate that understanding. You don't want to think about this purely in absolute terms, in terms of absolute rules, because that's going to be suboptimal. Now, absolute rules can be helpful to limit mistakes, but they will be inherently suboptimal. An absolute rule is something like never sell. There's a lot of people I respect who have a strategy that never sell. That might work really well for them. Their whole strategy might be built around the fact that they're never going to sell. And that's okay. That might be a good decision, but it is also inherently suboptimal. And suboptimal is okay. But you need to think clearly anytime you put an absolute rule into your strategy because there's going to be pros and cons for that absolute rule. I actually like the absolute rule of never sell, but it's not one I've incorporated because I believe knowing when to sell is a potential advantage for me, a potential edge, a potential source of alpha. And that's part of what I've driven this whole podcast episode, because I think this is an idea that I think investors in my community would benefit from. I personally use some absolute rules, like I have no margin debt. I'm not going to take on debt to buy stocks, no matter what. It's not worth the risk for me. I'm not going to buy options, no options. No covered calls, no puts, no straddles, no nothing, no options. This is probably suboptimal, but it limits my risk and allows me to take more risk in other areas. I have an absolute rule of no shorting. This is probably suboptimal, but it limits my risk and allows me to take risk in other areas. Those are three absolute rules I use that I believe I benefit from. But I recognize that they can be of suboptimal. But I also need them because I take risks in other areas. Think about that. The future is uncertain, so you need to know that there are going to be times where you'd probably benefit from violating those rules. And you have to be okay with that in advance if you're going to execute them well. So what is my point? My key point is this. There are aspects of my strategy that go against established norms. You will hear about them in my podcast. You'll hear about them through my Twitter feed. You'll hear about them on my YouTube channel. However, there are clear reasons those rules and aspects of my strategy exist. 
and that is that I know I cannot predict the future. I am not capable of predicting the future. Maybe you are, but I would encourage humility because you probably aren't. So, therefore, I am willing to sell or trim my winners when I believe it improves my potential returns and reduces my risk. I've done a whole podcast episode on this idea of value trading and how I implement that. But that's also a key aspect of why I produced this podcast episode, because I think that is actually a recognition of my inability to predict the future. It's not about my ability to predict the future, but I value trade because I can't predict the future. It might be counterintuitive, but I think it's a really important point for you to consider. I think it would be a mistake not to trim when I'm given the opportunity to do so. Failing to take advantage of opportunities that ignore zero-based thinking will result in me having lower returns across an investment lifetime. You want to build a strategy that follows the precept that if you lived your lifetime 10,000 times, what strategy results in a favorable outcome across the most possible lifetimes? You don't want to optimize for the perfect scenario, the 1 in 10,000 chance. You don't want to optimize for the worst case scenario, the 1 in 10,000 chance. You want to optimize for uncertainty. You want to optimize for the scenario that 9,000 times out of 10,000, 9,900 times out of 10,000 ends up in an acceptable outcome. That's how you prepare for the worst, plan for the best, and adjust daily. You optimize for uncertainty. In closing, I want to leave you with two points. You cannot predict the future and be more humble. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Thank you for joining me on this YouTube channel. Please hit the like button on this video. Don't forget to subscribe and ring the bell. Your subscriptions, your likes help me to grow the channel, help me to grow the show, and I appreciate them so much. Please take the time to do that. That's the only way that the algorithms, either on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, will help others find my show. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.